All right. Book of Jude. Book of Jude. Book of Jude. All right. Here we go. Let's start with this. When we when we began when we started, we, I didn't say we were going to be studying the book of Jude, but we uh, covered some very important concepts that I feel laid the foundation for the book of Jude. And those concepts were, number one, the faith. The faith. Good job. Number two, invasion. Number three, insurgency. Okay. And what's the significance of the phrase, the faith? Okay. It, it, it's identifying a specific faith, not something general or vague, but the faith, okay? Meaning that what is significant? Definition. Definition, right? And, and like, I think you were getting ready to say, if there's the faith. Exactly. So, but we need a definition. If there is the faith, we have to define what that faith is, right? Because without that definition, then it's just... Another faith, right? You've got to define what it is. You've got to be specific. And what's the problem with being specific? Exclusion, right? If you say this is the faith and someone doesn't hold to the faith, then in a sense they are excluded or they're not a part of the faith. Which, of course, in our culture today, that is seen as very judgmental, bigoted, and, con- and condemning. And so it's not a very popular concept, but it's still, we have to define the faith. All right. And what was the significance of the, the concept of invasion? That the faith is constantly under attack from the outside in invasion trying to come into the church. All right. But typically... How do most people view the invasion? They view the invasion as the world trying to get in, right? And so then they'll go, I, I've got an our article right here the other day, a massive rally held in front of Disney. Christians are all mad at Disney because Disney is, you know, the one that's going to attack the faith. Let's remember, well, how does the invasion occur? We bring it in. Now, I know that goes against every concept, but we stand, a lot of people like to stand out the window and go, those people are trying to destroy Christianity. No, the ones inside looking out the window pointing, we're the ones who destroy Christianity. And why are we the responsible for the invasion? Because Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we are being influenced by what? The very world that we so are supposedly so opposed to. And then we bring that concept where? Inside the church, and then from inside the church, what arises? An insurgency. And what's the, what's the attempt of the invasion and the insurgency? Really, in many, some would say to destroy the faith. I will say to redefine the faith. To redefine the faith. That's always the issue, is the faith being redefined. The faith being redefined. That is really a kind of, a kind of I think, the, a major issue. So, we talked about that. Then we went to the book of Jude. And what did we say in regards to the book of Jude? It is a letter for what purpose? It's a letter written to protect the church from the negative influence, trying to destroy it or redefine it, right? however you want to write it. So just make sure we have that down. And how does Jude begin? If we start with an outline, what is the first part of Jude? What do we call it? 
the greeting, okay? And what does he give us in the greeting? First, he identifies the author, right? Who is? Jude, and Jude identifies himself as a servant, which is, which is what? Doulos, meaning slave, right? And, and, a, and a servant is someone who does what? Gives himself up to the will of another, all right? So Jude identifies, the author is Jude, identifies himself as a servant of Christ, meaning he's given himself up to the will of Christ. How else does he identify himself? Brother of James, which is, is interesting, okay? And then he goes from the identify, in the greeting, the author is identified as the servant and brother, right? And then, we, what else does he do in the greetings? He identifies the recipients. Everybody remember that? Okay, right. I was seeing if any of this. All right, so we have the author, we have the recipients, okay? And what does he say in regard, how does he identify the recipients? Sanctified, preserved, and called, all right? Sanctified, preserved, and called. We looked at sanctified, did we not? What's the most significant thing about the, the phrase that we studied last week? Right, that if we, we speak of being sanctified, well, one, it says sanctified, which seems to identify, say it, past tense, like it's done. We have been sanctified, right? So we looked at the different ways in which we, we've been sanctified. What's the first way we've been sanctified? An election, right? Right, because God, by choosing you or electing you, has set you apart from everyone else, Yes? Okay, because he elects you, and then what, come, what flows from the election? Right? A calling first, right? You're going to be called, yes. Okay, then you're going to be justified, and then you'll be glorified. That means you've been set apart. That's a, that's a done deal, right? Okay, what's another aspect of being sanctified? Okay. Well, let's go with effectual calling, because not everyone receives the effectual calling, right? If we understand this correctly. That's another way of being set apart, yes. Then the third Justification, we're justified. That sets us apart. All of this, all of this would, would just gives the idea that we've been set apart. And all of that deals with different aspects that are, in a sense, positional, right? Positional. Now, we talked about people wanting to speak of sanctification in a practical sense. But if you speak of sanctification in a practical sense, what do you ha- how do you have to understand it or how do you have to distinguish it? First, it's not a done deal. It's an ongoing process, yes? And what's an, a, a, another important thing about looking at the practical aspects of sanctification? The practical aspects of sanctification cannot be given as proof for justification because justification is dependent upon an imputed righteousness and sanctification deals, uh, pr- the pr- practical aspects of de- uh, justification deals with the practical, or sanctification deals with the practical aspects. And the practical aspects can never be used to prove an imputed righteousness because what does an imputed righteousness not do? It doesn't make you righteous. It only declares you to be righteous even though you are not righteous, okay? So we, we have to make that distinction or everything begins to fall completely and utterly apart or you end up with a, a workspace system and then you have, to, you have to create the mathematical mess of Catholicism. 
Well, you're in the state of grace. You're no longer in the state of grace. You've got to do this to get back into the state of grace. And now we're going to have to throw in some indulgences and some different things to help you out because you're never going, because even they realize you're never going to do it correctly. So, so we looked at uh, sanctification well, and, I, and we looked at uh, that, and I think we, we covered it as well as we could. There's far more we could say, but that's okay. Now, today we come to the next one, which is preserved. We dealt a little bit with it, yes? How far did we get into the subject? Okay. Uh, what was the definition of preserved? Did we look up the Greek word? All right, to keep one within the state. That he is. Everybody remember that? Does that come directly from the Greek? Do we need to look it up again? All right, let's, look, let's look it up again. All right, let's go, go to the Blue Letter Bible app. Make sure that everyone's on the same page here. Okay. All right, so we have the idea of being sanctified. Okay. And then preserved. What is the Greek word for preserved? Yeah, remember this? See if this everybody remembers. Strong's G five thousand eighty-three. Tereo. right? And then uh Tereo is used seventy-five times. Right? It's uh, how how many it's translated keep how many times? Fifty-seven, reserve eight, observe four, watch two, preserve two, keeper one, hold fast one. So typically, tereo means to keep, all right? What's the uh, Strong's definition? There's a lot there. Okay, there's a lot there. Um, I mean, a watch, okay, then possibly connected to a different Greek word, to guard from loss or injury. That's important. From loss or injury. Now, immediately we know that's not referring to physical loss or injury, because we all lose things physically, right? And, and are injured, right? So, uh, so what, this would be immediately giving us the idea that we are kept in what way? From spiritual loss or injury in, in some ultimate sense, and we would have to, a lot we'd have to do with that, properly by keeping the eye upon, then it differs from a different Greek word, which is properly to prevent escaping from another Greek word, which implies a fortress or full military line, right? I mean, you can see all the di- different ones there, okay? You see all of, I mean, we can read all of this. The outline of biblical usage is to do what? Number one, to attend to, carefully take care of. To guard, to keep one in the state which he is. That is probably the very, I think, very significant for us. To observe, to reserve, to undergo something. All right? So, tereo, and it's used 75 times. We, would, and we could go through all of them. But the main idea is this, that he is writing to people who are sanctified. They've been set apart. And please note, how is the, the, the preserved spoken of? Once again, as a past tense. Preserved. Kept. And the state that we are. Now, let's just stop right here because this is so important. I want everyone to put your thinking caps on. Because it's going to become a big question as we go through this. When we read these greetings, what do we have a tendency to do with the greetings? 
Come on. We don't spend a lot of time on it, right? Okay? If I was to grab everyone's notebook, if you actually do Bible study, and say, and look at all the greetings that you've looked at and all the books that you've studied, I bet your notebook would have very little there. You may identify the parts, hopefully, in your outline, but that's probably about all you do. So what, what's the question we need to ask ourselves about the greeting? How does the greeting connect to the purpose of the letter? I think that's an important question, right? Because now, the, the greetings are all very similar in certain ways, but sometimes there's just a small d- difference here or there. But in this case, what's the purpose of the letter again? To protect the church from negative influences. The church is made up of what? People. Okay, people. And so to start off, is, is Jude going to ignore in any way, shape, or form the danger that the church is facing? No. He's going to be very upfront about that danger. Yes? So he's letting you know, hey, all of you, there's a danger, an invasion, an insurgency. There is a danger. The faith is under attack. But before he goes into the danger, before he goes into the attack, he wants to remind them of some truths about them. And what's the first truth is that they have been sanctified and set apart. Okay, it's one thing to be set apart, but not only have you been set apart, you've been preserved. What does that mean? That you're going to be kept in the state which you are, which means what? You're protected spiritually from losing that position and that place. Nothing, let me make it very clear, nothing can touch imputed righteousness. Nothing can touch it. Nothing can replace it. Nothing can remove it because it's an imputed righteousness. Does everybody understand that? Look, if you believe in salvation by an imputed righteousness, you almost have to believe in eternal security because it's an imputed righteousness. So if you look at someone's behavior and say, well, that behavior means you, you, you were never saved or you've lost your salvation, would imply that it wasn't an imputed righteousness. It was an infused righteousness, which you did not cooperate enough with. Therefore, you either never got it or you lost it. Do you see the problem with all of that? So this, why, and so why is this practically significant to them to know that they are sanctified and they are preserved? Because of the danger. Hey, you're in danger, but what are you not in danger of? Losing your salvation. That's, 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 that's awesome. It, it's weird because many Christians are so fearful of false doctrine. Like they're scared. I mean, I mean, whenever I talk about this, I know Christians lose their minds, but I, I just, I just don't get it. It's like right, you hear, you know, here's the uh, the New World Translation, Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, right? I don't care if you read it. Now, other people, are like, oh, you wouldn't want that to happen. Why? I'm not scared because if you're a Christian, you are. Preserved, you're kept in the state which you are. Either I believe that or I don't believe. But many Christians are like, you know, you know, don't let anybody see that. Keep them away from that. Don't do. Stay, stay, stay away. You know, hide your eyes, close your ears, run. And it's like, why? If you are, if I believe in being preserved, 
Nothing can remove that. Nothing can remove it. So maybe you can, some people can say that's foolish, but I don't see how it's foolish because I, 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 I'll never forget in uh, Nebraska, I, I preached a sermon dealing with Mormonism. And I basically told the church, get a book of Mormon and read it. And I, you think I killed 30 people. How, you can't tell people to do that. Are you trying to convert? Uh, do you believe in eternal security? And they're like, well, I believe in eternal security, but, but, but what? Well, they could get confused. Oh, oh no, I don't know what to do. What would happen if a Christian got confused? I don't know. I've never seen confusion within Christianity one time in 2,000 years of church history. Have you? Okay. Right? I mean, it's like we don't, it's just so weird that we believe in preserve, but don't. In this particular case, I can't even explain to you how significant it is. So here's what I want to do. Just because the idea of preserved is talked about here, I think it's a good opportunity. You can either grab the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Trinity Hymnal. I'm going to go to the London Baptist. Let's just add this to the discussion because I think it's important. I believe it's chapter 17 in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Probably the same in the Westminster. You can look. Or you can just look up London Baptist Confession of Faith on the internet if you want. 1689 is the one we're looking at. London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 17. Okay. Yeah, I think, what's it referred to? Okay, of the assurance. Okay, the way uh, my, uh, the London Baptist has it, the preservation uh, of the preser- uh, perseverance of the saint. Okay, all right. Okay, you're eating 18. Okay, so we're all in the same chapter, right? There may be a little slight difference, and if you see anything, let me know. Okay, of the perseverance of the saint. Everybody ready? Paragraph one. Those whom God hath accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit. Please now go back to Jude. Look carefully at the recipients and how they're described. What are the three words that describe them? Sanctified, preserved, called. Do we get some of that same language here? Oh, okay. So the ESV, read the ESV again of verse uh, 1. The ESV, the ESV doesn't mean sanctified? Or doesn't? Oh, beloved. Interesting. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so... Uh, but, so the, but you, you see this, the language showing up here, right? So, those whom God hath accepted in the beloved, as the ESV uses that, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now, immediately, that draws a distinction from what? Catholicism, which believes 
You can fall from a state of grace. All right? So this immediately demonstrates that the perseverance spoken of here is a perseverance that will ensure that you will not lose your salvation. You are eternally kept. That is very important when you're dealing with a church who's under attack from false doctrine. Right? That's very, very important and very significant. All right? What's the next thing that's said here? Seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, once he still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, and hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and flood arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off the foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding, though unbelief in the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraven upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity." Right. Once again, demonstrating they are kept, kept. That is again significant to this. All right. And again, I I don't really understand why so many Christians fear everything is going to somehow take away someone's salvation. Nothing can take away. Nothing can. Nothing can. And my and 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 yeah, I just don't understand the fear. But Christians just live like in paranoia that. One little, want to hear the one little wrong thing, and that's it. They're just done, and they're going to walk away. And it, it, if if faith is is that weak, then there's there's major issues here. All right, so we could read the rest of that, but that gets the main concept. All right, now that brings us to the next one, which is called, called. Now, what's the significance here of called? Once again, you've been called, like it's been done. It's done. What do we need? What's the main thing we need to understand refer to the idea of being called? What's the most significant thing about this concept? Okay, well, we've got to distinguish calls, right? What's the first call? General, or what else could we call it? Gospel call? Some may even refer to it as an ineffectual call, but okay, but it's the general or gospel call. What is that call? Goes out to anyone and everyone, and it goes out in what way? Creation is part of it, kind of part of it. That's kind of a general revelation is what we refer to that as. But in a sense, that, that's, not a, that's not specifically, let's just make sure, I don't like putting creation in the general call for this reason, is it's not a gospel call because creation cannot bring you to salvation. It's ineffectual. Does that make sense? So, in what way is the general call therefore to be delivered? Through the preaching of the gospel, right? So the preaching of the gospel is to go to whom? everyone, all right, and that is through the preaching of the gospel. That's the general call. Everybody got the general call or the gospel call, all right? Now, yes, that preaching occurs, but if the preaching occurs, listen, and all there is is my preaching and a dead sinner hearing, what can I absolutely guarantee will not happen? 
Salvation will not happen. I can try to manipulate it. I can do everything I can, but salvation will not occur. What is required for salvation to occur? The effectual call. And how does the effectual call work? What are the elements of the effectual call? Preaching. And then God intervenes through the work of His Spirit. And He does what? He has to give life, he has to give faith, he has to give repentance. All of that comes from God. Now, not everyone believes that. You understand that, correct? Right? How do most people believe it works? Right. I preach, you choose. Therefore, whose faith is it? Your faith, right? So, you, you answer it, it's your faith. You repent, it's all done there. And, and it's not, and they may try to say, well, God's involved, but they got to be very careful because if they say God's involved, then you have, you, you're going to get yourself in trouble because if God's involved, then how come one person gets saved and another person doesn't get saved? I cannot stress to you enough, the effectual call is all, makes it all the work of God. Now, why is this significant for them to understand this? God is the one who set them apart. God is the one who's keeping them, and God is the one who called them. Therefore, their survival, remember we refer to this as a survival manual, at least some books do. Jude is telling them that you are going to survive the invasion and the insurgency because everything about your salvation is of God. Everything is of God. He set you apart. He's keeping you. He's, he's the one who called you. It's all from him. This is to give them some sense of assurance, some sense of hope. Everybody got that? All right, now, let's go back to Jude. There's far more we could take those apart, but I want you to just see that. So we have the author, we have the recipients. Now, what do we have after the author and the... This is all part of the greeting. So the greeting, we have first the author, then we have the recipients, and then what do we have third inside the greeting? Okay, someone wants to call it encouragement. Okay. All right, what did you say? Do you remember? Okay. All right. What, what, what's some options? Give me some options. What do we call this? Encouragement's fine. Well, I, I, I probably threw it out there because in my notes, I don't have the word encouragement. But I love to throw ideas out there to see how many people will just run and grab them. I love to do that. And everybody's like, yeah, that's the right one. And then later I'll come back and go, no. Okay. And, then, and everybody's like, wait, but you said. And you're Protestants. Since when do you listen to me? Okay. All right. What else could it be called? Do what? Okay. What's a benediction? So when Seth just asked, what's a benediction? Yeah, that's the, that's the ending, right? This is the beginning. Okay, it's similar to a benediction. Prediction? Pre-benediction? Okay. Okay. I, I don't think that's it. What else could this be? He's writing to people, right? Okay. Is it reminders? There we go! 
Ding, 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 ding. Someone just got it. It's a blessing. It's in a sense Jude is giving a, pronouncing a blessing upon them. Okay? Now, you could call it a blessing would be an encouragement, yes. So you could refer to it as an encouragement. But I think blessing is while many would identify this. We may, but the, the question is, what's going on here? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. So here's what we have to figure out. Because once again, we could just read that and it sounds nice, right? What are the parts of the blessing? Mercy, peace, and love. Be multiplied. The be multiplied is interesting because that's not usually show, that doesn't usually show up in the blessings or the encouragement that shows up in mo- many of the letters. Many of the letters start that way, right? Many of the letters you can go through most of the New Testament and see how this works. Okay. What does it work? Oh, it does. Okay. So benediction works. What's the definition? Okay, a blessing. Okay, but at the end, this is the beginning. Right. But I'm saying almost always the benediction occurs at the end. But, okay. but it is another blessing. So we could call it a blessing. If it happens at the end, then we can call it a benediction. Okay. All right. That's, because, yeah, I mean, if you, if ever, even in a liturgical services, if they give you a the little printed out, you know, structure of how the service will end. Usually at the end it will say benediction. Yeah. And, and sometimes they'll borrow from Deuteronomy. Sometimes they'll borrow from Deuteronomy to give the uh, closing benediction. But okay, that, that's neither here nor there. So here, what's the question we have about this blessing? Yeah, again, we have a tendency just to read past these, like so quick, just boom. And like, no big deal, right? A lot of people would already, a lot of people, we're like in the third week and we're still in the greeting, right? Most people would have spent 15 minutes on the greeting and immediately one moved on and I'm taking too much time. Now, some people, we get irritated that I'm taking too much time and then complain, but I think it's important and especially in this letter because of what they're facing, right? I think the, the identifying the recipients as sanctified, preserved, and called is absolutely connected to what's going on in the letter. So what is this blessing? How do we understand this blessing? What do you think he, what do you, how, what are some possible ways some people would preach this? Okay, do what? Okay, and in, in what way? Ah, connecting it to the uh, way the recipients are described. That's a possible interesting concept, okay? We may play with that here in a minute, all right? Some people may look at this, because this is very common in the evangelical world, because the evangelical world loves to make everything a law, right? They make everything a law, everything. Everything they preach. Do this, do this, do this. It can be like, even when it's a law passage, they will take a law passage and say, go do this, right? It says, love God, you need to go love God. And it's, instead of, like, well, wait a minute, uh, we can't. Like, instead of seeing the law needs to drive me to the gospel, we preach it as, go do this, go do this. So a lot of people would say, see what Judah's telling them to do is go be merciful, be a, an instrument of peace and go 
love people and almost make it a law. That's a very common way to preach it. What's another way of, of preaching it? You, to remind them of what they have received. Mercy, peace, and love. That could be a different way. Let me read, I'm going to read from a number of commentaries and how they approach this. Because it isn't, it's, all the commentaries had very interesting takes, all right? Here's how one took it, all right? You ready? Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. This is not quite the, the same form of salutation used by the other apostles. So in other words, it's, it's not quite the same. But it is one equally impressive of an earnest desire for their welfare. These things are mentioned as the choicest blessings which could be conferred on them. Now let's stop right here. This is important. They see this as Jude demonstrating a great concern for the people he's writing to because he's very worried of the things that they are about to face or that they're already facing, which is basically an invasion and an insurgency. So what he thinks is, what are the most important things that these people need? They need to understand and they need mercy, peace, and love. That's an interesting way to approach it. All right, just keep that in mind. I'm going to continue reading. They go on to say, uh, these things are mentioned as the choicest blessings which could be conferred on them. Mercy and the pardon of all their sins and acceptance with God, peace with God, with their fellow men and their own consciences and in the prospect of death and love. To God, the brethren, to all the world, what blessings are there which these do not include? And their minds, this includes every blessing. If you take these three, that basically wraps up everything. Everything that you need. All right? So that they need this. So this would be the way to, this would be a way to connect this. In your mind, if you're, remember this is survival manual, right? You're facing a complete attack upon the faith going to be, you know, an attempt to rewrite it and write it out of existence. That has always been the threat. It was the threat when Jude wrote. It was the threat 300s, 400s, 500s, 1000s, 1500s, 1600s, 1800s, 1900s. You name the year, decade. It's, it's always been the case. So in what way does mercy, peace, and love equip, prepare, encourage one to face the flood of attack upon Christianity? How does those three things help someone deal with this? It it can seem like a vague concept. Jude thinks it's important. This commentary thinks it's important. So what is the significance of mercy? Oh, that's, that's good. When you get it wrong. Well, first, we, we need... Okay, when we think of mercy, what is mercy? Let's do this. Look up mercy, uh, Blue Letter Bible app. Look up mercy. What's the Greek word for mercy here? 
Let's make sure we have a good concept here. Right. The word mercy is, let me kind of pull it up here real quick. It is this Greek word. All right, everybody ready? Strong's G, 1656, Elias. 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 All right. She used how many times? 28. It's always translated? Okay, that's good. We don't have to get into argument or debate. All right. Elias, mercy. Strong's definition? Compassion. That's interesting. Human or divine? Tender mercy. Its outline of biblical usage is number one, mercy. Kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. Of men towards men, to exercise the virtue of mercy, show oneself merciful. Of God towards man and general providence, the mercy and clemency of God in providing and offering to men salvation by Christ, the mercy of Christ, whereby at his return to judgment, he will bless true Christians with eternal life. All right. So he reminds them of the blessing of mercy. Meaning what? A simple way of putting it. What? To be reminded that you are a recipient of God's mercy is to remind you of what? That you have received what you do not deserve. Right? Okay. How does that help you in facing the onslaught? Well, one, I think, I think it's interesting Stacy said that. When you're facing the onslaught, are you always going to get it right? Are we going to have our struggles trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong and truth? But it's a good thing to remember that whenever we struggle or fall, that we are recipients of God's mercy, we've received what we do not deserve. That's encouraging, yes? It's encouraging. Mercy. God, God's mercy has been shown upon you. It's been given to you. So no matter what happens, it's good to know that there is mercy. It's, it's good to, in the Christian life, if you don't understand the, the need and the constant need for mercy, then you are living in a constant denial of your own sinfulness. The more you realize how sinful you are, the more you'll know that you need mercy. When you're in the middle of a battle, there's going to be struggles and there's going to be failures. You need to know that there's God's mercy available to you. But how should that impact you? Those who've received mercy should be givers of mercy. In fact, even the outline of biblical usage refers to mercy as what? Go back to the outline of biblical usage. Kindness, goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted joined with a desire to help them. If you are a constant recipient of mercy, why you need to be a giver of said mercy, even to the miserable and afflicted who may and a desire to help them. Do you desire to help those who are in a false doctrine or do you have a desire simply to excuse their false doctrine? Do you have a desire to ignore their false doctrine or do you have a desire to hate those who hold to a false doctrine? Does everybody see the, the, the connection here? It's a, in other words, he's just reminding them. In fact, look at how it's written. 
Mercy unto you, peace and love be multiplied. He just throws the concepts out there, but reminding them, hey, you need mercy. You need mercy. We should all say amen, yes? But the minute I know I need it, I know I, I understand that everyone around me needs it. Nobody deserves it. So are, when, when those who have received it, are we the ones who give it? So the question is, is Christianity a body of the most merciful people on the planet Earth? But are we? When you're dealing with false doctrine... Look, it's, now, it's one thing to hate the doctrine. You can hate the doctrine all day because that's just, that's just a, theory, that's a theory. That's a concept, right? You can hate a concept. You can hate the theory. You can kick it, yell at it, curse it, condemn it, jump up and down, throw it across the room because it's, it, it's, it's, it's just the idea, right? Here's the idea. The problem is it's, we connect it to people and sometimes we want to throw the people around and not show mercy to the people. They're the ones who are the afflicted. They're the ones we should desire to help. We can't help the theology. Right? I've always said it. You, you, get, you name all the theologies, charismatic theology, I despise, I hate, I, I loathe, I want it destroyed, I want it wiped off the face of the earth, I want it burned, I want it thrown in the deepest ocean. I can't stand it. I don't want anything to do with it. If you give me a choice, charismatic church or Catholic church, I'm going to the Catholic church. Uh, charismatic or Episcopalian. I'm going to the Episcopalian. I'll go anywhere other than a charismatic church. I don't want anything to do with any of it. I despise it with every ounce of my being. I hate it. But guess what I can't do? The people. Because what do they need? Mercy. And my desire to do what? How's the definition and outline of biblical usage? To help them. Why? Because I've been given mercy. God should hate me. Well, we'll see if we can connect them. All right. But I do think that the mercy immediately, if you go back to how he describes them, why am I sanctified? Mercy. Why am I preserved? Mercy. I mean, and really all three can be connected. Why am I called? Mercy. So all of those things described, I have been, I've received mercy. Therefore, that's encouraging because I'm going to need mercy. Like in your Christian life, you're going to need mercy every single day, every single day, every day that you breathe, you're not getting what you deserve. All right. So there is mercy. Okay. Now I'm going to go back and read a little bit here what they have to say here. All right. Um, I'm going to read another commentary. Mercy and a time of wretchedness, therefore mercy stands first, the mercy of Christ. Do you see that? Look at, uh, they, they want us to look at verse, I believe, 21. Keeping yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. They connect this mercy to Christ. Now, why is that significant? Because Christ is the one who came to die for us, giving us what we definitely do not deserve. Right? That, that, that's interesting. But in a time of wretchedness, 
I like the way they say that. In a time of righteousness, we, mercy stands. We need, in, in a time where everything's under attack and everything's being destroyed, we need to be reminded of mercy. Then they put peace. Look at Jude 20. Is peace mentioned there? Well, they don't play peace, but they have. But ye, but ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. All right. But they connect peace with the Holy Ghost. All right. What, what's one of the fruits of the Holy, uh, the fruits of the Spirit? Peace. Right. So there you go. And then the love. Look at verse 21. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. All right. So they connect the love with, with God. The, the three answer to the divine Trinity be multiplied in you and towards you. So the idea of being multiplied, they say connects with the idea of being multiplied in you, that all these things will be multiplied in you, mercy, peace, and love, and towards you, that you need mercy, peace, and love facing the chaos that he's getting ready to describe. Okay, I think that, I like the way they try to put that together. All right. um, This one, they, they state it this way, mercy unto you, which is the fountain of reconciliation. All right. Love, either he means God's love to them or their love to God and each other. Be multiplied, mercy and the effects of it, peace in the sense of it, and either the love of God uh, in the manifestation of it or their love to God and their neighbors and the degrees and exercise of it. Right. Trying to have it going both ways. Okay. Um, let's do this. Um, go back to Jude. I'm going to run out of time here. I'm trying to hurry. Um, so we have mercy. Now, peace. Let's look up the word peace just to see uh, how it's used. The blue letter Bible app, the Greek word for peace here. Let's look it up. I got about 10 other commentaries here, but I don't have time to read them all. All right. The Greek word here, mercy unto you and Peace, it is this Greek word. Everybody ready? Strong's G, 1515, Irene. Irene. Irene, it's used how many times? 92 times, 89 times it's translated peace, so that's, that helps us out. One time, one, one time rest, and one time quietness. Um, Irene, uh, the, its Strong's definition is? Peace, literally or figuratively, by implication, prosperity, one, peace, quietness, rest. Um, We could go through all of it. There's not a lot there. It's outlined in biblical usage, a state of national tranquility. Exemption from the rages and havoc of war. Isn't that interesting? Remember the Jude is a survival manual because they're in the middle of a, a war, invasion, insurgency. So, yes, this is speaking primarily of a physical war, but what is, what's kind of the hope here? Then in the midst of this spiritual war, we will experience what? Or an exemption from the rage and havoc of war. Peace between individuals, harmony and concord, security, safety, prosperity, because peace and harmony makes and keeps things safe and prosperous, of the Messiah's peace, the way that leads to peace of Christianity, the tranquil state of a soul, 
assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that it that is. The blessed state of the devout, upright man after death. I think that the one right before that, the tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, fearing nothing from God, and content with its earthly lot, whatever sort that is. That is very important, and the one about, um, yeah, exemption from the rage and havoc of war, I think are both very present, are very important to this discussion. The people Jude is writing to are getting ready, they're getting ready to, I mean, they're facing all kinds of false teachers. All kinds of confusion. It's going to be a bad, and whenever you start fighting against false teaching, what happens? I'll, I'll get, you can just look at our YouTube page if you want to see, okay? All right? I'll give you an example. All right, so I talked about, I did a discussion about Calvinism and abuse because there's this whole thing going down about this counseling, uh, this teaching on counseling at a seminary which basically says if you're a woman being beat, you stay there and take it because that's what God wants you to endure, right? This being taught at a, prominent seminary, and uh, we're like, whoa, what in the world is that going on? Well, all the, out, the outcry over this and all the video clips that are going around about it, we, I played a good portion of it and reviewed them all. Um, uh, Calvinism is being blamed. This is, this is the problem with Calvinism. This is the problem with Calvinism. Calvinism, Calvinism. Because Calvinism believes God is in charge of everything, so he ordains everything, so therefore the abuse is ordained by him, so therefore you suffer it, right? And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hey, this is not a Calvinistic problem. This is a problem of what? This is the problem of God. The minute you believe in God, you're the one who has the problem. Okay? This is why atheists constantly destroy Christianity because we don't realize the minute I say, I believe in God, you're like, oh, the God who's all powerful? Yeah. The God who's all knowing? Yeah. The God who's omnipresent? Yeah, so the God is all-powerful, who knows everything, who's present, created a world knowing all these horrible things are going to happen. War, famine, rape, killing, murder, all of this is going to happen, and he did what to stop it? Nothing. Therefore, what do you have to conclude? It's a part of his plan. You can't, I mean, if you say, well, it's not a part of his plan, then you were like, so God lost control over everything in Genesis 1? I created everything and, oh man, it spiraled out of control. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What could he have done? As soon as Adam, the end, start over. Whoop, the end, start over. The end, start over, start over, start but, in fact, But not only that even makes any sense, because why we'd have to start over, he knew before he created them exactly what was going to happen. In fact, he created the very one who was going to come in and tempt them. So I try to explain, this is not a Calvinistic problem. This is a problem of theism. You may not like it, but get over it. You got it, no answer. But Christians get mad and they get defensive. So immediately, guess what shows up? This is not a, pro- no, no, this is a Calvinistic problem. I and, I, and I quoted the London Baptist Confession of Faith because they made a claim about Calvinists that are not even true. I don't need to read any confession. And he was like, T- 
could you, do you understand the problem? If you believe in God, you have the same problem. Does everybody understand that? It, Calvinism is irrelevant. If you believe in God, the problem is yours. And Christians just get mad. Like when an atheist comes at them with this, Christians just get defensive. Like, why are you getting defensive? You're the one who wants the problem. Right? Because you want to believe in a God. Everybody wants to believe in a God, and their concept is that God would never do what? Allow for all this bad stuff to happen. So, but then the minute you say God is not allowing all this bad stuff to happen, then you have to define that God is not in control, all-powerful, or all-knowing. Therefore, you've now destroyed the very concept of God. <laughs> so then the atheist is looking at you like, you just destroyed the very concept you told me it's true. Does that make any sense? So everybody has to realize that this is a problem. Now, the minute you try to defend or explain, what do you find yourself in? Conflict. Does anybody like conflict? Okay. Nobody likes it. Can it, get, it can get frustrating, yes? Because then you're like, okay, how do I respond to this? Do I even respond? Do I ignore this? But, but on some case, you want to respond because you feel bad that the person just completely missed the whole point. He still wants to argue Calvinism. I'm like, it's not a Calvinistic issue. It's a God issue. They don't get it. So then you can either go back and forth, back and forth, and then they start getting mean or they get, you know, irritated. And then you just realize this is pointless. Well, guess what? Guess what they're getting ready to deal with for the people in, uh, who Jude is writing to? Conflict. And guess what conflict has a, ten- a tendency to do? Does it create peace or destroy peace? So he wants them to know mercy, peace. He's, hope, he's, he's pronouncing a blessing of peace upon them so that what will happen? They will have an exemption from the rage and the havoc of the war. The war, they're not, he's not denying the reality of the war. He's not even denying the fighting of the war, but that they can find what? Peace within it. And in that last part that we mentioned, right next to the last part, he states, of Christianity, the tranquil state of the soul assured of its salvation through Christ. Why can they have peace? Because of mercy. How have they been assured of their salvation? How does he describe them in the previous verse? Sanctified? Preserved and called. So they, they are assured of their salvation. This should give them peace. And then how should this peace play itself out? Fearing nothing from God. They have nothing to fear from God. Right? Because they've been saved. And then what should that lead to? Content with its earthly lot. Do you think they, the people of Jude that Jude is writing to would love to be in a situation where they have to deal with heresy after heresy after heresy after heresy after heresy? No. But it's like to be content with it. Does that mean content with the false teaching? No. Content with the fact that you're going to have to be the one battling the false teaching and nobody wants to be that person. Do you think Luther wanted to be that person? No. Nobody wants to be that person. So either some Christians don't do anything. Well, that's wonderful. They just neglect their duty. They don't care to even do enough study to be able to argue anything, right? They're not even willing to do anything. So 
that that's a problem. So I think that that's a great way of understanding it. All right, and then we're we're out of time here. Um, and then what's the the last one is love. All right, now we can just look at it a couple of ways. Because we have been sanctified and preserved and called, we know that we have become recipients of God's mercy, and we need to be givers of that mercy. Because we have been sanctified, preserved, and called, and we are recipients of God's mercy, we should be at peace within ourselves. Peace about our own sin because it has been forgiven. And we should hopefully be the one who is a source of peace even within conflict. Right? You, you all know that there's, when something goes horribly wrong, right? when something goes wrong, you have two kinds of people. You have the certain kind of people like, okay, okay, let's work this out. Let's figure this out, right? Here's what we're going to do, right? Everybody, okay, you take care of that. You take, they're calm. And the other people are like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh, no, oh, no, it's the end of the world. We're all going to die. Oh, it's over. Forget it. Oh, it's the And you're like, okay. Usually that's what you have, right? We're, we have to be the ones that have peace, at least as far as the spiritual conflict is concerned, okay? All right? And then, what's the, the last thing? Well, love. We know we've been recipients of God's love because we have been what? Sanctified, preserved, and called. Therefore, we're recipients of God's mercy, and we have peace with God. Therefore, we know we have been loved by God. And those who have received God's love needs to be what? Givers of God's love. There you go. All right? Any questions? Does that take care of the greeting? All right. We, I could read a lot more commentaries on it because they do a lot of interesting things on how to handle it. But I just want you to see that I think this is absolutely essential to the rest of the letter. All right, we'll have to stop there. All right, Lord God, we come before you this, this morning. It's a very important letter. The situation that they were facing is very similar to the situation we are facing today. Christianity is constantly under attack. There's apostasy in, there's apostasy without. There's invasion, there's insurgency. We have our own failures. Lord, just help us learn as we read this letter what we can learn from it, but not forget the encouragement found in the greeting and, and that we are, we know for sure that we are sanctified, preserved, and called And as a result, we know that we have received your mercy, your peace, and your love. And let us be givers of that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...